Well, those of you who are here this morning, thank you for coming back. It is great to be with you again this evening. One point of clarification I might offer when Dr. McWilliams kindly made reference to my health issues. I had a few people afterwards, several actually, that were panicking that I'd had a heart attack in December and was already here. Um, I, I did indeed have a massive heart attack, but it was in September, not December. <laughs> so all of you doctors and nurses out there, you may still be concerned, but maybe not as much. But I do have my nitro with me in case you're wondering, so. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on the study of his word together. Please bow with me as we pray. Oh God, what a sweet day of worship, of fellowship with your people, of sitting under your word and relishing the truths that you have granted us in your grace and kindness. And on the close of this Lord's Day, we gather once again to hear from you. Oh God, we are hungry. Would you feed us? There are things that would distract us tonight as well, O oh God, and we ask that you free our hearts from the tyranny of urgent matters and other pressing matters distracting us from your word. And, oh God, would your spirit do his work tonight. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his ministry. And thank you for this section of your word that we delight in as your great commission to your church. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. The Reformation actually never made it to Central and South America. Some of you will know of the history of Roman Catholic missionaries in that part of the world and the impact that it has to this day. But when the Reformation was happening in continental Europe and made its way as well into the British territories, it did not make its way into Central and South America. And over the course of these some 500 years, the people in that part of the world have suffered under the, the real syncretism, the, the way in which Roman Catholic tradition and theological error have merged with the tribal religions and animism in that part of the world. And in recent decades, many within the Roman Catholic world found themselves so disillusioned and hungry that there was a sweeping move of other sorts of religious traditions, liberation theology, charismatic theology, prosperity theology. Well, having traversed these treacherous paths, including the Roman Catholic road, these in South and Central America are actually, by the movement of the Spirit of God, there is what many today are describing as a reformation. It is truly breathtaking to see what is happening in that part of the world, and I encourage you to become more aware of it, as I've talked with many in that part of the world as they're celebrating the, the great solas of the Christian faith, which is new for them, they're saying, yes, we are 
500 years late to the Reformation, but we've always been late. We're Hispanic people. That, that comes not from me, but from them. A whole new meaning to minana. But I want you to know that there is a great move of the Spirit, a great interest in, in God's Word. There is church revitalization going on. There is the planting of new churches. There is a revival of hearts as people are moving from the dead end of Roman Catholic theology and the dead end of charismatic and prosperity theologies and finding as they go back to the sources, back to Scripture, the great solas of the Reformation. Pray for them. These are stunning days in Central and South America. The Reformation also never made it to parts of Asia. I want to make reference this evening to Bangladesh. Bangladesh, which is a dominantly Muslim country, is seeing the growth of the Christian faith now in unprecedented ways. Not in the ways in which we're seeing in Central and South America, but I just want you to be aware of one particular movement of God there. About 40 years ago, a Western missionary had come to Bangladesh and was doing the work of evangelism. He came across a young Muslim man, one who was a devoted advocate of Islam. He knew his Quran, he followed the Hadith, and yet as this evangelist met with this young man that he had knocked on his apartment door and had been welcomed in, he found him incredibly receptive. What he didn't know is that he was actually incredibly deceptive. He invited him back, but this time he invited two of his friends, and they went to a place off-site where they met, and they nearly beat this Western missionary to death. Months later, after he had recovered from his wounds, he came back. He knocked on that apartment door, and there stood Ayub Edward, once again, the very man who had tried to take his life. Ayub was completely undone. He said, why would this man come back to me after what I have done to him? And the Lord used that bravery <laughs> to bring Ayub Edward to faith in Christ. Ayub has now been used of God in the last 20 years to plant the Presbyterian church in Bangladesh. And it is growing, it is thriving. I had the privilege just a few years ago of teaching 60 of its pastors, all of whom are Muslim converts. The work of God is, as C.S. Lewis put it so wonderfully, well described as Aslan is on the move. Jesus told his disciples that not even the gates of hell will prevail against his church. Why is that so? Well, we are going to find out now. In the last words of Matthew's gospel, as we stand and read them together, we are going to find out why the gates of hell will not prevail against Christ's church. 
Stand with me now as we read Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when he saw him, and they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. Please be seated. For most of us, this text is very familiar. And yet, with some of the more familiar texts, sometimes we need a bit of a refresher. And this particular text bears out critically for even the things about which we spoke this morning from Psalm 67. And I want your hearts to be refreshed and your minds reminded about this question, what is so great about the Great Commission. We have called it the Great Commission. What makes it so great? Well, you know about the word great. It it, is used in a a number of different ways. There are the Great Lakes. There's Great Bend, Kansas. If you've been there, you don't know why it's called great. There is the Great Wall of China. If you've been there, you do know why it is called great. Then there's the Great Wolf Lodge, Some of you have taken your grandkids there and know that it makes a great dent in your wallet. (laughs) Then there is the store Great Clips, which I have visited on more than one occasion and been incredibly puzzled by the name. (laughs) Then there, of course, are Great Danes, and we all know what makes them great. It is the buckets of drool that come from their jowls. But what is great about the Great Commission. As we read these final words from Jesus, we find him actually with the eleven. This is at the point in Matthew's Gospel in which Jesus Christ has just been raised from the dead. This is that moment before he ascends to his Father. He is gathered with his disciples here on the mountain. A mountain to which Jesus directed them, no doubt a place that his apostles, disciples were familiar. In reading the text, you will have heard the word all repeated several times. All authority has been given Jesus. The disciple-making is to be for all nations, and he will be with us always. But don't miss that this is occurring in the context of the unfolding of God's incredible story of redemption. In keeping with the promises that we considered this morning from Psalm 67, this is a moment in which the promises of God are realized in the life, death, and now resurrection of the beloved Son in whom 
he is well pleased. To frame it a little bit differently, that very promise that was given in the Garden of Eden that there would be one who would become the skull crusher. There would be one who would become the substitute. There would be one, as Scripture unfolds for us later in Genesis, there would be one who is the seed of Abram through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. You see, what makes the Great Commission so great is actually being the great answer to the promise of God. This is a text that unfolds for us in all of its brevity that God did what He said He was going to do. You remember what we said this morning, God cannot not do what He said He would do. And here is a glorious the most vivid demonstration of the yes and amen to the promises of God in the person and work of Jesus. Not even sin and death and hell could hold Him down. Because He has been raised from the dead, as Paul will put it in Romans 1, as Son of God in power. So what makes the Great Commission so great in part is it being a great answer to the promises of God. Jesus, through His apostles in the New Testament, does not leave us wondering what it is that we are to do. We are called to gather with one another, to worship. We're called to love one another. Oh yes, we're called to care for the weak, the poor, the needy. We are instructed on how we are to arrange our churches through the officers that God has designed to be in the life of the church. But here we are given the explicit missionary calling, the missionary task Now this text is to be rightly understood in the preaching and teaching office of the leaders of the church, of the ordained officers of the church, but it applies to the church as a whole in the responsibility that we have to be on that divine errand of mercy, of proclaiming the yes and amen of Jesus in fulfilling the promises of God. Jesus says, you've got a job to do. This is your task. You know why he says that? Because he understands Psalm 67. Because Jesus has come as the one who is the answer to the promises of God. What makes the Great Commission so great? It is the great answer. It is the great fulfillment of the promises of God to his people. But there's more. As we read in verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It is striking that we find in the words of the Great Commission a direct connection to the entry ordinance into the visible church. Now that may, in your context here, not seem all that striking. I will tell you that it is in view of how the Western church has viewed the work of missions. Without going into the reasons why this has occurred for 
many, many generations now, there has been a usurping, as it were, of the church's role in the sending of missionaries as well as in the oversight of missionaries, but indeed in the work of the missionary in evangelism, discipleship, and church planting. This has been lost, and in some ways there has been a vacuum filled because the church has failed to take this calling seriously. All that notwithstanding, many within Western missions, those are sent from the West to the world, have downplayed the visible church, have made light of the visible church. And here we have Jesus Christ in the words of the Great Commission saying there is no Great Commission without the church. The church is at the center of it. You see, yes, our faith is a personal faith, but it is not to be a private faith. We are to gather as the people of God. And as you even think about the errors, even in modern evangelicalism coming out of liberalism and post-liberalism, we see the great errors that occur when you have a, a salvation that doesn't involve church. Salvation just becomes a matter of sentimentality. It's my private, personal faith. But the opposite is also true. When you have a church without a personal salvation, that produces nothing more than sociology. If I can put it in, in more theological shorthand, soteriology without ecclesiology is sentimentality. Ecclesiology without soteriology is sociology. Jesus calls His people, His servants, to do the work of the ministry in the context of the church. Disciple-making in the Great Commission is a churchly endeavor. The church, as Paul will tell Timothy, is the pillar and support of truth. It is incumbent upon us then in our thinking of missions and our work as a church sending missionaries that this work is tied directly to the visible church. That is a matter of faithful stewardship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't make light of this. So what makes the Great Commission great? Well, certainly it's great answer to the promises of God. In part as well, it is the great visible reach of churches that are planted around the world where the people of God on the Lord's Day are gathered to worship in His name from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Thirdly, here we see Jesus as He talks about the task of discipling of all nations. In verse 20, He says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Jesus here is asserting something that counters the Twitter theology of our day. Tis so tweet to trust in Jesus. Jesus in his very first recorded sermon makes stunning statements. Blessed are the poor in spirit. 
Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Jesus' call to discipleship is one that turns the world upside down. Or better said, it turns an upside down world right side up. What Jesus calls us to is a life of following Him. And note there is an instruction component, but there's an obedience as well. Teaching them to observe, to follow, to obey all that I commanded you. This sort of message does not sit well for those of us in this United States context that think Jesus is just my potion for self-fulfillment. In considering that, I'd like to just reference a bit of what God is doing in China for a moment. The Chinese church is certainly one that understands the great call of the Great Commission, the demands of that call. Many of you will be aware of what has been called the Three Self-Patriotic patriotic Movement in China. These are the state-sanctioned churches. You may or may not be aware that alongside those state-sanctioned churches, there are 13 state-sanctioned seminaries as well. These are seminaries, the content that is taught there is entirely vetted and controlled by the government. It is pure Chinese nationalism combined with liberal theology. In contrast, the house church movement is like a giant beach ball in a swimming pool. As the government seeks to push it under, it just keeps popping up over and over again. It's hard to know how many Christians are in China right now, but estimates are, are, are moving towards the 100 million number and only to be growing by leaps and bounds in the next 20 to 25 years. That is in part due to the very oppression that we pray against. In 2018, the Chinese formed the Regulations for Religious Affairs, a new statement that has leveled higher degree of pressure upon Christians and churches in that part of the world, pressures on house churches. Now, let me just pause you for a moment. Some of you may have been in China, but you may not be aware when you think house church, don't just think a particular flat somewhere with a small group of people gathered for worship. Many of the house churches actually have owned, even illegally, and the government hasn't stopped them at various points, but have owned massive properties. I've been in house churches that actually had 1,500 people in attendance. Those buildings, however, since 2018, many of them have been razed to the ground, crosses have been toppled, and any any unregistered church has been faced with sanctions of all types, including the so-called tea parties, when church leaders are invited into the police station for interrogation. Some of the legislation, and just think about the, the, the creative genius, as it were, of the Chinese government, 
they are now forbidding any Bible instruction for anyone in a home or in a church anywhere who is under the age of 18. And in many cases, they are pressing in on that, coupling these particular sanctions with the nearly ubiquitous cameras on street corners, the ability to only ride public transportation by use of your cell phone so that they are tracking every move and actually correlating it with your social media. It is indeed Big Brother realized. But here's what's interesting. The Chinese government rightly understands the Lord Jesus Christ as a threat They understand that what they want is the worship of the people of China. And they are establishing themselves as Lord, or better said, President Xi is establishing himself as Lord. As Helen Raleigh puts it in The Federalist just a couple of years ago, the Chinese government would tolerate any religion only if it puts the Chinese government before God. Well, the Roman Catholic Church compromised. The Pope has actually worked out an agreement with the Chinese government where bishops are actually approved by the Chinese officials. Not so much with our house church brothers Sisters, they're not falling down at the feet of the government because they understand this call, this call to follow Jesus, that when they declare Jesus is Lord, they're saying that President Xi isn't. Part of the greatness of this great commission is actually being manifest for us in the lives of our brothers and sisters in China who are suffering greatly today. But interestingly, and I will never forget this conversation with a Westminster student many years ago. He came to my office and he said, Dr. Garner, I would like to speak with you about my return to China. He said, but before I do, he said, I just need to ask you a question. How do you do it? I said, well, how do you do what? He said, how do you remain faithful when it is so easy to be a Christian here? He said, I don't think I can do that. Not only do I want to go back to China to serve the people there and to proclaim Christ there, I think I have to. Because it is only there that I understand what it means to follow Jesus Christ as Lord. How do you do it? My answer was, But it's revealing in the sense of the comfort and ease that we've enjoyed in this land as followers of Christ that in many ways I think in this generation are on the cusp of being threatened. But let us not diminish as Jesus reminds us here that we are to observe all that He has commanded. He indeed is Lord. Part of what makes the Great Commandments, Great Commission, sorry, so great is its great call on the followers of Christ. So what makes this great commission so great? It's the great answer to the promises of God. God has delivered on what He promised. It is the the great reach to the nations whereby the visible churches are set up 
around this world. It is the great call to follow Jesus, to not only know His Word, but to, to yield to it, to submit to it, and indeed to delight in it. Often, in treatments of this text, it would be time to say amen. If I did so now, I would be failing you miserably. Because underlying all of this, what makes the great commandment great, sorry, I keep saying commandment, the great commission great, is the greatness of God Himself. Here we read, again in verse 20, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Dear ones, how often we do take our Trinitarian theology, even though we are mystified by it, we take it for granted. But let me assure you that our Christian faith is irreducibly Trinitarian. One God in three persons. And we have in the backdrop for this great commission is the God who is orchestrating all history so that all the nations might be glad and sing for joy. What makes the Great Commission so great is this triune God, the God of Holy Scripture. Gospel proclamation is Trinitarian proclamation. It is a proclamation that our God is one God in three persons, and anything less than that is not Christian. Back in the late 19th century, B.B. Warfield was giving a lecture to a group of prospective missionaries, and he bemoaned the fact that he had been receiving messages from Western missionaries who came back to him and said this, I have found a way to teach the Trinity to Muslims that does not offend them. And Warfield astutely said, if you teach the Trinity in a way that does not offend Muslims, you are not teaching the triune God of the Bible. One of the striking things in contemporary missiology is the the pressure to reduce the Christian faith to the lowest denominator of all religions and to remove its identity as the, the very one true faith from the one true God is actually to do an incomplete reversal of what Jesus Christ has called us to do. We live in an age in which as Muslims are coming to faith, you need to know that I... In a recent interaction with one Muslim convert, he said to me, if I had not been offended by the Trinity first, I would have never come to faith. And as this Christian brother said, the only thing that leads us away from proclaiming the triune God of Scripture is fear, and fear is from the pit of hell. Let us boldly proclaim this God, the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What makes the Great Commission great, yes, is the fulfillment of the promises of God. It is its great reach to the nations and the visible manifestations of the Lordship of Christ in 
the communities around the world, the greatness of the call to observe all that Jesus has commanded. But behind all of that is the greatness of the triune God. But there's more. At the center of God's redemptive work on the stage of this earth, is the incarnate one who was humiliated before he was exalted. We might have almost passed it by as we read the backdrop, and I'm not going to spend much time in verses 16 and 17, but I do want you to look at verse 18 again. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, those of you who are students of theology will say, now, wait a second, Jesus is God. So what does he mean that he now has an authority that he didn't have before? Well, let me just do a swift sweep of redemptive history. Genesis 1 and 2, God creates all things out of nothing. He creates Adam from the dust of the ground, as Genesis 2-7 puts it. He becomes a nefesh chayah. He becomes a living being by the, indirect, I'm sorry, by the direct inbreathing of God into his nostrils. And we see later the, the making of Eve from his side, the special creation of our first parents. But then we find in Genesis 3 that Adam, as our representative head, as our covenant head, failed to obey the Word of God. He listened with his eyes rather than listening with his ears. And if you weren't here this morning, that'll make sense if you listen to the sermon this morning. But what happens in Adam's fall is that we, all of humanity, fall with him. Where we are in violation of the law of God. We are by nature sinners. We are corrupted. And in the course of the the fall, we find the curse that has come on to creation so that all of creation is now under the control in some way of the spiritual forces of darkness. Well, let's fast forward then through all the pages of the Old Testament, then into the New, when we move into Matthew chapter 4. And it's parallel in Luke chapter 4 in this astonishing account of Jesus being led into the wilderness to be tempted. And as he's led into the wilderness, as Matthew 4 puts it, Satan says to him, I will give you the nations. Jesus doesn't say, those aren't for you to give. Listen to how Luke puts it. The devil took him up, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, 
it will all be yours. What does Jesus say? It is written. You shall worship the Lord your God and only him shall you serve. Why is that relevant to the words of Jesus? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Precisely for this reason. Satan was offering Jesus a shortcut around the cross. He was offering him a pathway to glory that did not require the humiliation of of him as the one mediator between God and man. And Jesus knew that the only path was the pathway of obedience for his people. The reason why Jesus celebrates that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given is because now as he has been raised from the dead, he is now, as Paul puts it in Romans 1-4, the Son of God in power. And with irreversible authority, Jesus now claims the nations for himself, having stamped out the head of the serpent. Jesus is the Savior. He is the Master. He is the Commander-in-Chief. If I can put it this way, what makes the Great Commission so great is the greatness of the Great Commissioner. The greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ who suffered, bled, and died for your sin and for mine who bore that unthinkable agony. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? So that at his resurrection, he might receive the investiture of the King of kings and Lord of lords, whereby by the outpouring of his Spirit that he removes the blinders from the eyes of the people of the nations, Jews and Gentiles alike. You want to know why you know this Jesus now? Is it because he has been raised from the dead and his Spirit has been poured out on his people. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. What's stunning is what we read Then at the end of verse 20, and behold, I, the one who has been raised from the dead, the one who has been invested with this authority and this power, the one who is now King of kings and Lord of lords, the Lord of the nations, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Dear ones, There is great call, there's great mandate in this great commission to go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Jesus commanded us. But the only reason why that is even possible is because of the greatness of Jesus himself. And he now is the one who is the resurrected and exalted Son who lives ever to intercede for us at the right hand of the Father where the enemy cast darts of accusation against the people of God and Jesus stands in your place and says, you are a child of God. 
The greatness of the Great Commission, then, is surely the great answer to the promises of God. It is the great reach of the Gospel to the nations as promised. It is the great call to follow Jesus. But its greatness lies in the Trinitarian God and the Son whom God the Father has sent. Therein lies the greatness of the Great Commission. And dear ones, This is why Jesus says, not even the gates of hell will prevail against my church. Why? Because I am with you. Even to the end of the age. The authority of Jesus goes with His people as we submit to His Word, as we gather on the Lord's Day to worship The task is really pretty simple. It's taking that which Jesus has given us and delivering it to others. This is not something that we add to. It is not something from which we subtract. It is a message that has been entrusted to the people of God to proclaim. As was mentioned, I think, this morning, my family and I served in Eastern Europe as missionaries. We lived in Sofia, Bulgaria. And as I went through with my family the agony of learning a new language and being reduced to a two-year-old, and going through the, the, the blood, sweat, and tears and humiliation of learning a language and making a fool of yourself, I was at this point on this particular Sunday, I had not yet started preaching in Bulgarian. But I was at that moment in my language development where I not only understood everything the translator said, I anticipated it. So on this particular Sunday morning, Moni, Simeon Grozdonov was translating for me. So Moni listened to me. I would make a statement and then he would make a statement. I made another statement and he made another statement. I made another statement. And he made a statement, made a statement, made a statement, and made a statement. He kept going. Obviously, he found a point that he wanted to make himself. So I said to Moni, Tazi Nadelia, she propoviadum svoita propovet, drugden mojista propoviadus svoita. Which translated means, Moni, today we will preach my sermon. You can preach your sermon another Sunday. But then it dawned on me, what a great illustration of what it means to be a steward of the mysteries of God. As a herald, as one who delivers this message on behalf of King Jesus, what do we do? We don't subtract from the message. We don't add to the message. We deliver it in submission to the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Prince of Peace, King Jesus, to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given. As we said this morning, this mission is a mission that cannot fail And I see there are a few young people in this auditorium this evening, and I want to make a special word to you. 
There are going to be many things that vie for your attention, that seek to suck you into the vortex of cultural relevance and fulfillment of your own desires. But do not forget that there is nothing more important than being a follower of Jesus Christ. Following with all of your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul. You won't regret it, but also, I add, perhaps tonight the Lord is planting a seed in your heart that you may be one whom this church sends on this divine errand of mercy to proclaim Jesus to the nations. That is the best stewardship that could ever be exercised of your life. Pray, pursue, and maybe God will send you from here. This is a mission that cannot fail. Invest your life, not in your desires, but the desires of King Jesus. In Him is great hope, is great certainty, great comfort, great confidence, great joy, and a really great investment. For the gates of hell will not prevail against His church. What makes the Great Commission so great? Ultimately, it is the great God of heaven who has revealed Himself in the person of His Son. And it is that Son in whom He has invested all authority in heaven and on earth. And that King says, Go. Therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Let us pray. Father, I pray in this brief moment that indeed that you would use this church more mightily in this generation and generations to come if the Lord Jesus tarries to be a church that is about this work, about this mission, about that which cannot fail. And Lord, we thank you that in view of the mandate that is given for the church, the task that is given and entrusted to us, that it is grounded in your provision. We thank you for the Lord Jesus who is the very one who said he is not ashamed to call us his brothers. What astonishing grace, what astonishing mercy, and what an astonishing message. And oh God, may we be about the work that Jesus has called us to. And we thank you for the greatness of the Great Commission because of the greatness of our Savior, our elder brother, your beloved Son, in whom you are well pleased. We pray in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.